Well, tonight uh, we are looking at just 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And these 10 verses are amazing in that they contain three, maybe four, very popular sayings that even people who've never opened a Bible would know. And they also contain three of Jesus' most outrageous and seemingly undoable commands. So they're worth looking at. You've probably thought of, you've probably spotted. Actually, it would help you actually to have the Bible open on Matthew 5, 25, uh, 5, uh, 30, 38 to 48, if, if you still have it near you. But you've probably spotted those three four or four common sayings. The first is, of course, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The other is turning the other cheek. Uh, the third is... Uh, walking the extra mile, going the extra mile. And the, f- the fourth is actually a maxim that's more familiar to the older ones among us. Um, it goes, the rain it raineth every day on the just and on the unjust fella, but more on the just than on the unjust, because the unjust has the just's umbrella. And then, of course, there are those three, four, three radical, co- ra- radical commands of Jesus Um, Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And the most radical of all, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. The uh, 20th century British philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, was raised as a Christian, uh, but he uh, rejected his faith And eventually he wrote about these verses saying, The Christian principle, love your enemies, is good. There is nothing to be said against it, um, but but except that it's far too difficult for the rest of us to practice sincerely. Well, you don't have to be an unbeliever to struggle with Jesus' teachings. In fact, his own followers found some of his sayings so unpalatable that they turned away from him. And I confess that I too found it difficult to get my head around these verses, which at first sight looked like commands that no ordinary mortal could possibly begin to obey. I mean, Jesus, are you really saying, uh, you know, that I must not resist the person who attacks me or my family? Uh, Are you really saying that I must uh, only let a criminal who steals my stuff not only let him steal it, but run after him and give him more that he hasn't taken yet. Um, you know, it's, they're tough. And I asked the Lord, look, please show me uh, how to understand these verses in a way that, that I could absorb and uh, take upon and, and inwardly digest. And he led me, and I believe I, he led me, to read it back to front. And this evening, I'd like to invite you to do the same. To start at verse 48... Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then work backwards to love your enemies and an eye for an eye. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your wonderful word, often difficult to understand at first. But we ask tonight that you open our eyes and you open our ears and our hearts to receive anything that you have to say to us this evening. Through these words. Amen. Matthew five forty eight. 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. On the face of it, it can't possibly apply to you or me because by no measure would we call ourselves perfect in any way. And nor do we think that we could become perfect no matter how much we try. But if you look at the original Greek text uh, from which our NIV translation is, 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 uh, is taken, uh, you'll find that the Greek word for perfect is teleios, which is very different from our abstract philosophical notion of perfection. The original applied to an unblemished animal that was suitable for sacrifice on the altar. Any human being who has reached adult maturity and is able to take the responsibilities of an adult is called teleios. Um, A musician who has reached a certain level of proficiency in playing their instrument uh, would be teleios as opposed to somebody who's still struggling with their scales at grade three. So another way of putting it is that while our idea of perfection is abstract, the, Greek, the New Testament Greek idea of perfection is, 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 is functional. A thing is perfect if it is fit for purpose, fit for the purpose for which it was created. To use a very simple analogy, imagine that in my home I have a screw stuck in a wall that I can't get out. I I pop down to B&Q and I choose a screwdriver, find one that's just the right length and fits nicely into my hand. And then I go home and I find that the head fits exactly into the slot of the screw. And I give it a couple of turns and the screw comes out and I say, perfect. You see, that screwdriver was Taleios, perfect for the job for which it was designed. And you and I, are teleios, perfect, when we are suitable for the purpose for which God created us. And the overarching purpose for which he created us is to know and love and serve him and know and love and serve those that he brings into our lives. And the overarching purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, and indeed you could argue that all of Scripture, is to bring us to help us to reach that level of maturity where we are teleos, suitable, fit for purpose, so that God can use us in the way that he intended to use us from the very beginning. That journey towards perfection um, starts when we invite Jesus into our lives. And when we do that, he will help us to reach that level of maturity, when we follow him, we will become teleos. And that applies to every part of our life. We can be teleos in our work, in our family life, even in our sexuality. In fact, last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday at this time, you will have heard Eddie preach on the previous section of the Sermon on the Mount, which, where Jesus teaches about um, lust and adultery. And Eddie talked with enormous clarity on what it means to reach God's standard of perfection, Thaleo's standard of perfection in our sex lives. He didn't use those words, by the way. But if, uh, if you didn't hear it, please, I do urge you to download that sermon. It was really good, and it, would, uh, it inspired me, 
And in fact, it reminded me that being fit for God's purpose brings with it great joy. I mean, is there anything more wonderful in the world than developing our God-given gifts and then using them in the way that he intended us to use them? But there's just one more thing I must say about verse 48 before we work our way back through the text. And it's about Jesus' command not only to be perfect, but to be perfect as your, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's a tall order. It's one thing to aspire to be fit for purpose, uh, you know, perfect in the fit for purpose sense. It's quite another to imagine that no matter how hard we struggle, we, that we will ever be perfect as God is perfect. And I admit that I don't fully understand it. It's one of the questions that I plan to ask him when I meet him face to face. But since I'm contracted to stand here tonight to unpack these verses for you, I shall make a a very feeble uh, attempt, a partial through the glass darkly attempt, to answer what he means by being perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In the creation narrative, um, God says, let us make man in our image and likeness. And that means that we human beings were created in some way, which we don't really understand, to resemble God. There is some God-likeness in each of us. And maybe that's why God has this irrepressible, unquenchable love for us that we sang about just a little while ago, the sort of extraordinary, extravagant love of God. You know, the Bible tells us that God loves, God's love is unconditional. It's eternal. It's unquenchable. It's poured out on all human beings, the good ones and the bad ones. In fact, verse 45 uh, says, uh, Your Father in heaven causes his rain Uh, his son to rise on on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the Father's goodness is poured out on every one of us, no matter where we are, saints and sinners alike. Furthermore, he constantly seeks the highest good for every human being. And I find it staggering that no matter what we do to him, or to someone that he created in his own likeness, that God seeks nothing but the very best for you and me. And that this goodness extends even those to those that hate him. Uh, Just remember Jesus looking down from the cross on those who had driven the nails into his body and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So now, having thought about perfection and looking like God, perhaps we may be in a slightly better position to understand what comes before verse 48, what comes in the previous verses, and what Jesus is saying in verse 45 when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. The kind of love that Jesus Uh, expects from us has x-ray vision. He commands x-ray vision, which means that we look at the soul, we look at what's behind the outside of the person in front of us. 
The great 19th century American poet and philosopher, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, wrote, If we could read the secret, secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm any hostility. But what does love of enemy really, really look like? Well, first of all, Jesus never asks us to love our enemies in exactly the same way as we love those that are the nearest and dearest to us. Sadly, in the English language, we have one word, love, which covers many, many, a whole range of meanings. And if we, um, once again, turn back to the New Testament Greek in which the Gospels were written, you'll find that, in fact, and you may know this, that there are four different words for love. In the New Testament Greek, there's the word storge, uh, which refers to family love, the kind of love that parents have for their children. And then there's eros, the love that um, it, it, it describes sexual love, and it's the, the word from which we take our word erotic. And thirdly, there is philia, which describes the, the love for our mates, friends, friendship love. And finally, fourthly, there's agape, which uh, is used in, to, in, the, in, the, in this context of loving our enemies. And we think of it as being that unquenchable, irrepressible, um, really amazing love that God has for, towards others. And the main difference the main difference between all the other kinds of love and agape love is that agape love is an act of the will as much as it is a love, an act of a heart, and maybe sometimes only an act of the will. Let me illustrate this by telling you the story of Uwe Holmer. No, that's not exactly a name that tips off the, the tongue, but anyhow, Uwe Holmer. In East Berlin... During the communist era, uh, years before the reunification of Germany, each of Uwe Holmer's eight children applied to get into the University of East Berlin, and each of them, in turn, was rejected. The East German Ministry of Education um, offered no explanation, but the reason wasn't hard to guess. You see, Uwe Holmer, the father of those eight young people was the pastor of, a, of an evangelical church in East Berlin. And during the 26 years that he led that church, the East German Ministry of Education was run by Margot Honecker. Margot Honecker was the wife of Erich Honecker, Erich Honecker the East, East Germany's communist leader. But then in the autumn of 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. This was the very wall that Honecker, uh, Erich Honecker had built back in 1961. With the collapse of the Berlin Wall came the collapse of communism. And Honecker and his wife were thrown out of their jobs. Honecker himself was indicted for a whole string of crimes penetrated, perpetrated during his premiership. And both husband and wife Honecker were evicted from their luxurious mansion in Wondlitz, the suburb full of exclusive mansions and neighborhood reserved for the upper echelons 
of the Communist Party. Overnight, the Honickers found themselves out of resources and even without a roof over their heads. None of their old cronies offered them any of the, so the social benefits that the Communist Party always boasted about. No one wanted to be seen with them or identified with Mr. and Mrs. Honecker. No one except, of course, Pastor Yue Holmer. Despite decades of abuse that he and his family had suffered and his church had suffered, endured under communism, Pastor Yue Holmer reached out to the Honeckers, inviting them to move into his vicarage. Having literally nowhere else to go, the Honeckers accepted and went to live with Pastor Honecker and his family. Later on, Ewer Holmer would write about how Eric and Margot Honecker, lifelong atheists and outspoken enemies of the Christian church, always folded their hands and closed their eyes and bowed their heads during Holmer, Holmer's family prayers. What Ewer Holmer did was not, was not natural and it was not universally appreciated. In fact, many condemned him for it. Uh, many East Germans who had suffered at the hands of the Honecker's cruel regime would gladly have seen Mr. and Mrs. Honecker starve in the streets of Berlin. But many others came to faith because of what Pastor Ewer Honecker Uh, you, sorry, you, Pastor Ewe Holmer and his family had done. You see, they were teleios. They were fit-for-purpose disciples who, who have made, gave a living example of what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. And that, neatly, that story neatly leads us into the second part, the next part of our reading, which is about the law of retaliation and loving your enemies. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the law of retaliation, or the law of tit for tat. We all know what tit for tat is, and you, we find it enshrined in the Bible, in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. It's there. And Jesus doesn't condemn it. I mean, humanity... Humanly speaking, there's not much wrong with the law of retaliation because far from being barbaric, it's the beginning of mercy. A common characteristic of primitive uh, tribal societies is that if, if one man or woman of your tribe is injured or killed by someone from another tribe, the whole of your tribe rises up and Um, attacks everyone in the other tribe. And so the act of an individual can often lead to the extermination of his entire family, his entire ethnic group, uh, the whole bunch of them is killed. And the law of retaliation, therefore, the law of tit-for-tat, deliberately limits vengeance. It says only those that actually committed the crime should be punished, and that the punishment must fit the crime. Furthermore, Mosaic law, uh, the Mosaic law of retaliation did not allow people to take the law into their own hands. The punishment had to be administered only 
by magistrates and judges. Also, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which sounds so barbaric to us today, was meant as a statement of principle. Uh, There's no evidence whatsoever that the penalty of an eye, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was ever actually administered. In fact, the Bible very quickly uh, replaced that rule with monetary compensation. So the law of retaliation is fair. Most of us live by it today. Most of us must are entertained by watching it on television. In fact, our whole criminal justice system is based on the law of retaliation. But Jesus expects his his followers to go beyond justice. Part of being a fit-for-purpose teleos Christian is to make every effort to live by the law of love rather than by the law of retaliation. In practice, that means being ready occasionally to give up our rights and not always insisting that justice be done to us. And why is that so important, do you think? It's because we Christians are judged not only by the good that we do, but also by how we respond to the evil and the bad things that are done to us in the course of our lives. Jesus' teaching here only reflects his own life and ministry. And we only have to think of how he responded to those that mocked him, slapped him, spat at him, tortured him, and eventually crucified him. For some people looking at the Christian faith from the outside, you may, you've heard this before, you may be the only Bible that they will ever read. And how you respond to your disappointments, your losses, and your afflictions will color their view, not only of you, but of your faith. So how does giving up our rights actually play out in daily life? Well, Jesus gives four examples that are as radical now as they were 2,000 years ago. In fact, they were outrageous then, they're outrageous now. But let's look at them. First of all, someone slaps you in the face and you invite him to do it again. In the second one, someone steals your stuff and you run after them and you give them more stuff to steal. In the third, someone asks you to do something and you do twice as much as they asked for. In the fourth, someone asks you for money and you give it to them without questioning or hesitation. Now, we can get terribly hung up on these examples, and by doing, getting hung up on them, we can miss what Jesus is really saying. Not all of us have been physically slapped in the face, but we all know that occasionally life gives us slaps in the face, don't we? You may have experienced being unfairly dismissed, sacked from a job. You may have been badly deceived and let down by someone you trusted. All kinds of things can be a slap in the face. And in the face of such things, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are 1 Corinthians 13 people, that we live by and in faith and hope and love and that the greatest of these is love. And we trust the words also of Romans 8.28 that says that all things work together for good for those 
who are called to his purposes. We don't always see it, but we believe that, don't we? Victoria and I um, have know a Christian couple who endured the unspeakable, unimaginable agony of seeing one of their children murdered. And instead of demanding maximum vengeance, they found it in their hearts to forgive the young man who killed their son. And now they devote their lives to going into inner city schools to talk to teenagers about the futility of carrying knives and the importance, the vital importance of seeking forgiveness and nonviolent ways of resolving conflict. And reading what Jesus says about theft, if someone takes your tunic, let him take your cloak as well, brings to mind a scene from the musical Les Miserables. Um, Victoria and I have seen the film, the stage show, at least three times and seen the film twice. And you may be very familiar also with, with that story. And you may remember that early in, in, the, in the story, uh, the vagrant ex-convict Jean Valjean is given a bed in the house of a bishop. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean decides to steal the bishop's silver plate and the goblets and all the silver that he had in the house, and he runs off into the night. In the morning, he is brought back to the bishop's house by the police, together with a whole sack full of stolen silver. To the astonishment of the constables, the bishop welcomes the thief back with the words, I am so glad to see you, dear brother. Um, when I gave you all those, that silver last night, I forgot to give you these two candlesticks as well. At that point, of course, the police release um, Jean Valjean, and when they're gone, uh, the bishop turns to him and says, Now go on your way now, my son. Take these things and use them to build a new life and to become a good man. And as the story unfolds, we become aware that it is due to the redemptive act of that bishop, the unnatural, overwhelming generosity of that bishop, that Jean Valjean's life is redeemed. We haven't time to explore what Jesus means by walking the extra mile or lending to anyone who wants to borrow from us, except to say that in every such situation, we must ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to respond as a disciple of Jesus rather than someone who merely demands justice and equity. When we show the agape love of God, Uh, to others, then God becomes visible in the world. But none of this is possible without a total inward transformation. That only happens when we invite Jesus to take hold of our lives. And And only he really is capable of changing us from the inside out, because that's what it takes to make us fit for purpose. Let me finish by saying that being a fit-for-purpose teleos Christian does not mean being the best at everything. Throughout history, God has used imperfect um, human beings as the perfect instruments for the situations that he had them destined for to build his kingdom. Jesus, 
the perfect, unblemished sacrifice, died for our sins, and by his cross has bridged the gap between what we are now and where we need to be in order to become as perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect.